Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. boxing history but you know a little bit of a blend doing a blend of the boxing history plus the contemporary because the boxing history is inspired by the contemporary and so forth which means i'm here with my dude eris pina compu box operator and just the fight history fanatic like me what's up bro how are you not too bad my friend how are you today man it's it's hot again it's hot it hit it but it's okay. We're we got some hot boxing talk, bro. And these fools this weekend are about to be hot. Guaranteed this weekend because heavyweights. So, yep, they're big boys, and that's what we're talking about. The the biggest of the big boys. But first, dude, Luis Ortiz, Andy Ruiz Jr. Yeah. I mean, like, it, it, there are a handful of things to talk about when it comes to this fight. Like, first of all, what do you feel about it? It's to me, it kind of seems like one of those things we're going to talk about today just like fun clash between big boys i mean what do you think's gonna happen should be a fun fight for as long as it lasts to be honest man i mean ruiz is never in a bad fight um luis ortiz is rarely in a bad fight they're gonna make for a good clash of styles to both of them are come ahead type fighters ortiz is a is a pressure boxer and um ruiz is obviously with his extremely fast hands is a come forward guy you know, so yeah, that's gonna make for a really good fight, and it's definitely, in my opinion, that would be. I don't think it's gonna go to distance. In fact, I'd be very surprised if it goes to distance. Um, and this is gonna be a very, very interesting clash of styles. All right, you got Luis Ortiz, like I said, who was a very good boxer, but is a come forward pressure fighter who has really hard hands, been to the top a few times, um, experienced, and judging on his age, you you don't even know. A lot of people joke he's in his fifties, but. He's in his mid-40s, but, I mean, at the same time, <laughs> you never know, man. I mean, who knows what these fighters, right? <laughs> but yeah, um, Ortiz, by all accounts, is in his mid-40s, but he's still relatively fresh. He's been, you know, I mean, yeah, he's been dinked a few times by Wilder and stuff like that, but he's never been in an out-and-out war. Um, Ruiz has a lot to prove now still. He's still trying to prove himself after the Joshua fights. Um his first fight, you know, with Anthony Joshua, I was ringside working at Madison Square Garden. And that remains, for me, one of the biggest nights, you know, craziest nights of my life. Like, witnessing that live is something I'll never be able to, like, you know, explain coherently. Um, watching the way he got dropped first, got right back up, and then with the flurry when Joshua went down, I almost leapt out of my seat before I was, like, kind of held down a little bit and, like, realized, oh, yeah, Aris, you're still working. Relax. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, you're totally... Yeah, you're not off. supposed to, like, get in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, well, mm-hmm. honestly, me too, because I'm there counting, you know, doing the counting for the punching. But for that one second when he got dropped and I didn't have to count for a moment, I was just like... <gasps> you know, but, yeah, um, no counting right there. Yeah, yeah. But it, it was just an incredible time, man. And yeah. Ruiz did his thing that night, you know what I mean? Even though he came in as a last-minute substitute, a little bit out of shape, um, 
the hand speed, the way he threw his um, the way he threw his combinations. It, can't deny his hand speed, man. He's probably the fastest guy in the division. Anyways, we know his history since then. Comes grossly out of shape in the rematch with Joshua. Gets thoroughly outboxed. Falls into a depression. Um, quits with his trainer, Manny Robles. Um, then he goes with um, Canelo's people. You know what I mean? And um, stays with the Reynosos for a little bit. Looks like there's going to be progress made over there. Ends up in a mass exodus with a few other fighters leaving Reynoso's camp. But unlike guys like Ryan Garcia, he actually still has good things to say about them and hopes that he can still work with them again eventually. But again, Ruiz was just going through a lot of stuff. He said he was going through a bad depression. He was going through a lot of personal things and trying to deal with just trying to get his career back on track because he knew he really fell the fuck off. And he says now that he's, you know, really back in the gym, he's been feeling good, he's feeling well, and um, he's motivated again. And I guess we'll see on Saturday how that, excuse me, Sunday, how that translates. Yeah, I mean, the the jokes about Luis Ortiz, dude, like, I mean, they're obviously jokes, but somewhat legitimate in terms of being concerned about his age and his mileage. Uh, as we've talked about before, when fighters have a long amateur career or a notable amateur career, um, as Luis Ortiz did, you know, for Cuba, mm -hmm. it, it that that's not that doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, the the damage and the mileage and whatnot is cumulative. And having to get up every day for three decades and you know do that, that shit fucking wears on you. And eventually it takes its toll. And on top of that, uh, when fighters get to a certain point or a certain, you know, accumulate a certain amount of damage, it could literally happen overnight from one round to a next, you know, next round, one minute to the next, whatever the case may be. So it's a legitimate concern beyond the jokes, you know. Um, and on top of that, Luis Ortiz has been dinged around a handful of times pretty good in, in the pros. Wild bombs, bro. Man, you can't eat them. You, you just can't eat them while they're bombs, dude. You know, Helene's about to find that out. No, uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it's literally the kind of thing where obviously Deontay Wilder has the kind of punching power that can bail him out in just about any situation. As we, as we saw against Luis Ortiz, who did really, really well against Deontay Wilder twice, and twice was just like, bro, you can't sleep. You can't fall asleep, that bro. That second fight, man, Wilder literally did nothing for like six rounds. He just kind of oh, let Ortiz yeah. totally outbox him. And then it, all of a sudden, it looked for certain, like he was going to get knocked out. It was like, oh, bro, <laughs> he's getting just softened. And then one right hand right on the forehead and you just see the cascade of sweat go up and ortiz just turned to jelly again and i'm just like oh. yeah dude <laughs> and and i mean it's that's the thing is that like we're now have having to like is that deontay wilder's punching power which is legitimately scary which is like you know sometimes you just get caught by deontay wilder or is this he could be winning this andy ruiz fight and then andy ruiz just kind of opens up and scores a combination and his legs go out again that's, I mean, the, considering that's the question. Last fight with Charles Martin, absolutely. You know, Charles Martin, even though he was, I can't believe you have to say that he was a heavyweight champion at one point. Um, look, he's actually proved to be a pretty decent fighter since then. You know what I mean? He's put up some respectable performances, but he wasn't supposed to do anything like he did with Luis Ortiz in their fight. And he was comprehensively winning it, and he dropped him twice, and those were legitimate knockdowns. So before Ortiz had to bail himself out of that one, I mean, proof is right there, like you just said, Pat. You know what I mean? Definitely is on the back nine right now. 
Yeah. And there's no question. And on top of that, I think that we've seen um, Andy Ruiz Jr. looks a little bit better, not with the photoshopped, you know, muscles and shit, but he he does look uh, clearly. That was funny how everyone was believing that shit for a minute. Yeah, it was like legitimate accounts were tweeting that out and like, whoa, you know, come on, you gullible. But um, no, he obviously looks like he's been working more consistently going back all the way you know a handful of years all that type of stuff toward the beginning of his career as a pro i just remember seeing him consistently being like i i have a difficult time taking this guy seriously we're going to talk about more of these guys today but a fighter heavyweight or not who comes in just in like slovenly condition like looking like me bro like i'm just a random guy bro like i'm not an athlete you need to <laughs> you're a fucking fighter I've I'm, I go if I were to go into a boxing gym for like a month, you it I feel as though you can't look like that, like mm. it's like you would you would be struggling to keep weight on, and so that that for in anyway not to belabor the point, but it was difficult to take him seriously, and that was one of the big reasons why people were so shocked by the Anthony Joshua win. So you know, it is a big part of his narrative, like, you know, not coming in in shape. And like, so if he is able to come in in shape, he just basically needs to give himself the best chance to win. And if he doesn't, as always, it's on him. But they're both scrappy. They both got the dog in them when it comes to actually, you know, going into the ring. So I think it should be, at the very least, you know, it should be a scrappy fight. It's going to be a, definitely, it's going to be a lot of fun. And I wouldn't be surprised if Ortiz does score a knockdown or two of himself because um, Ruiz was dropped in his last fight, which, you know, would equally shock one Chris Areola. So, I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, I won't even say equally shock one. Areola's been shock one for a long, long time now. That dude's beyond rusty. So, if he was able to, like, wobble, um, excuse me, Ruiz and, like, drop him in and, like, really hurt him and do what he was able to do on that. Ortiz is, you know, a lot higher caliber at that point. I would still consider him. So it's going to be interesting, man. There's variables in this fight, but Ruiz is on the upswing, I would still say, potentially, as opposed to Ortiz. And if Ruiz wins this fight, he's in the PBC realm. You know what I mean? Um, I would love to see him fight Wilder. Is that fight that probably is going to happen anytime soon? Who knows? You know what I mean? Wilder, if he beat if he beats Hellenius in October, um, I'm sure he's going to try to get another title fight after that. You know, the winner of uh, the potential Usyk um, Fury fight that may happen early next year. So we'll see about that. Um, if not, Ruiz would be a viable option, man. And that fight would be a lot of fun because Wilder and his power, Ruiz, who can take a punch, but it'll be interesting to see how he can handle Wilder's, Wilder's power. Uh, the blend of their styles, that would be a fascinating fight for me. <clears throat> uh, I'm thinking too far ahead right now. This Sunday's where it's at, and it's going to be a good one. I expect Ruiz to win. Um, I think he's going to have some uncomfortable moments, but I think he's going to be able to stop Ortiz mid to late rounds. He he's he seems to be more on the upswing as far as career momentum and all that type of stuff. Stylistically, I don't really know, but yeah, he seems to just kind of that. That's probably the safest bet. One thing I will say, and I agree with you, I think that Andrew Ruiz should win. Um, but one thing I will say for PBC is that they are pretty good at. I mean, you could call it recycling opponents but i think that it's more strategic than that they're pretty good at knowing how to shift guys in a or fighters in a particular division around and so you know if if uh, hellenius loses to deontay wilder but looks pretty good 
and then Andy Ruiz Jr. wins against Luis Ortiz, but like doesn't look that impressive, then maybe they put him in against with Hellenius or something like that before going to Wilder, you know, that sure. kind of thing. So that those kinds of things they're usually pretty good at, which I uh, I totally appreciate. So anyway, there are a bunch of different options. Yeah, right. What's that? Ron Katz works with BBC, right? Um, I don't know if he works with them, but I know that he. I think he works with fighters that are with him. I don't. I don't know. You know. I think I don't. I don't know if he's like their official. I know he does matchmaking or something with them, but I mean, if he's with them, that show they have that's experience right there. That's true. So, because Katz has been around for forever, he's a Hall of Famer in terms of matchmaking. So, I mean, yeah, he's like Joe Lewis when he fought Marciano, 147 years old. Who <laughs> comes with all? Yeah, exactly. Still lively on Twitter, but I I will mention also too because remember I think when um when I posted that we were going to be doing the show he did say that Ortiz is apparently in tremendous shape and he's heard good things so that's true yeah yeah that's true no and that's a that's a good good call and a good shout out because he did reply to that um so yeah I mean that's but that's a good thing we want to see both of these fighters in the best possible shape you know because I don't want to see who he's working with right now again I don't know because I know. Because I know he switched trainers. He's not, um, I don't know off the top of my head who he's working with. I honestly don't know either. Okay. I Well, and actually, before we move on to the history portion, I was going to ask, too. We don't have to spend a lot of time on it, and I'm not asking you to, like, rail on the idea or anything, but this is a pay-per-view. Uh, you know, Ortiz Ruiz is a pay-per-view. And so that seems to be a major talking point as far as going into the fight. Like, I don't think anybody really minds the fight. Nobody really doesn't like the fight. It's just that <clears throat> number one, it's a pay per view, which I te which I tend to have a little bit different view on because for me it's like well, it's an optional pay per view, but it's not taking up a Showtime slot like a Showtime boxing slot. I'm kind of like, whatever, you know, like that's not taking up some slot some other fighters should be taken up because these fighters have basically like they they get paid too much for this kinds of slots or whatever. So I get it, they have to put it on pay per view. My only issue is that just about any time there's a, a pay-per-view or a notable pay-per-view rather than being like $29.95 or something like that it's automatically like 80 bucks like i i don't really understand the logic of going toward the maximum for that shit but in any case the whole pay-per-view conversation you know unfortunately is a part of it going in I mean, it's always going to be about that, and people are always gripe about pay-per-views, and rightfully so. You know, um, the prices. I mean, paying money sucks. Like you know, like paying well, more and, money and, sucks. And paying close to a hundred dollars for a pay-per-view that's clearly not worthy of a price tag like that sucks even more. But yeah, it's, it's a deep fight card, but it's just not a fight. PBC is really good at matchmaking. It's just that there's not a whole lot of fighters on the card where you're looking, going like, "Oh, I know that guy. I know that guy. I know that person. I know that person." So it's like, it's like a if tough sell. Like if they put this card at like 50 bucks or something like that, I don't think people would be complaining too much. That's what I mean. I mean. Yeah. And that used to be the normal price tag for big pay-per-view shows back in the day in the 90s, early 2000s. Um, when did prices start changing? Mid-2000s probably or so? When things started getting like really premium? Yeah, like when it started Life going to Lewis. like... Life and Lewis, I think, had like a really high price tag, for example, right? Yes, that did. And then on top of that, also when they started offering an HD option. That's right, yeah. And stuff like that, then it was almost like, I'm not, I'm just saying, it felt like almost like an excuse for them to kind of start hammering on us a little bit more. But 
I, I know shit costs Black money. Black Box is where it was at. Yeah, I never had one, but I knew of them, and I knew people that had them. So, of course, I was like, you know, Black Box was one. where it was they at. They told me, don't talk about it. They said we weren't allowed. They told me, don't talk about it at school. Don't let anybody know that we have one. I mean, people knew. Everyone kind of, you know, around the neighborhood, at least one or two people on the block had one. And, um, yeah, everybody would come to our house to watch the boxing pay-per-views, and then I would have buddies over to watch the wrestling ones. <laughs> And you also, too, you'd get, like, either the Playboy or Spice Channel at some point. Yeah, you didn't You didn't have to. So, in other words, you didn't have to just go 99 99 99 good. All the new movies, everything, man. That When that box finally, like, uh, ceased and desisted, which was about... Uh, when was the when was the De La Hoya and Mosley rematch? Uh, I want to say, like, 2003 or something like that. Yeah. Right around 2003, after I graduated high school, uh, right, I started college. That's when the box ended. <laughs> well, and that was also right around when, like, a lot of shit started going digital, too. Yeah. So that seemed to be a big change for a lot of shit and kind of an upward tick for the price tags. But anyway, I mean, it's – I'm not going to try to discourage anybody from buying it. If you want to buy it, buy it. If you don't, don't. Uh, don't listen to me. You know, like, non-account of me, whatever. I'm I'm looking forward to the main event, and I'm looking forward to a fairly well-matched undercard, but it's a tough sell. That's all I'm saying. It is a tough sell, man, and a lot of people, again, they have every right to complain about it because they feel that they're going to have to pay hard-earned money, especially a high price tag for a fight. They want to get what they're worth, and considering that, they would look to something, you know, like uh, Errol Spence against Terrence Crawford, for example, that they want to pay, like, you know, premium money for for a premium card. And for something like this, again, if there was a lower price tag, I'm sure people wouldn't complain as much. But the fact that we get so many pay-per-views in a fight of this caliber, which back in the day would have been on either Showtime or HBO as just like a regular, pay, you know, uh, main yeah. event. Um, yeah. You can so in, yeah, and I, and I get the business of it, too, because inevitably somebody would respond to something to the effect of like, well, they only have X amount of shows left on Showtime. And so we can't take up that slot because of they make X amount of money. And I'm like, dude, I get it. You know, I'm not arguing that. And I'm not arguing the business at all. I'm just saying from a fan's perspective. Totally. But, you know, from a fan's perspective, too, we got boxing history to talk about, bro. That's I mean, we're big boys. Big boys against you know big fighters against big fighters and stuff like that. We've we've done a a similar show previously, but oh well, we've done that recently too, where we did like the heaviest punchers or hardest punchers or whatever. It it's oh. all fun. Who cares? Um, <clears throat> but you know that <clears throat> excuse me, Ortiz Ruiz, both of them being fairly sizable fighters, was obviously the inspiration behind yeah behind the the conversation today. So. Yeah, man, I, I know you had some good ideas for us fighters from yesteryear. And I, I will admit, you're probably going to bring up some fighters today that I'm like, oh, shit, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about that, dude. But either way, who's the quintessential for you? Like, just large heavyweight. I, just because, I don't know, man, I find him kind of fascinating and interesting. James Broad. <laughs> Broad ass. <laughs> Hell yeah, dude. We brought him up on uh, recently, almost like by accident, on a recent show. So yeah, it's a good, it's a good callback for sure. I mean, well, the thing with James Broad, he was clearly a, you know, he's a very tragic case, and I'll explain why in a minute. But like, 
Broad comes from the, the class of 1980. Right? <clears throat> Same thing, the, the class that we brought up about Davy Moore recently, and we we're talking about um, tomorrow's champions and just that whole doomed 1980 class. So James Broad, I wasn't sure back then, actually. I, was, I got them kind of mixed up. I thought he was a part of tomorrow's champions, and he wasn't. He was actually going to be a member of the 1980 Olympic team. Um, he was a very, very decorated amateur, man. I mean, he just, in the finals of the 1980 Olympic trials, he flattened Marvis Frazier in the first round. Like, beat him, you know, knocked him out so badly that Frazier stuff, uh, suffered a stinger or something to that effect. And that's what, like, you know, made him expedite his career so much. And if you notice that the surgery that he had in the back, of, you know, that surgical line that Frazier had in the back of his yeah. head, that was because of James Broad knocking him out. So that tells you the type of power this dude wields. Like, he was a beast. And when he turned pro, you know, a very, very big guy, had a lot of girth to him, but, like, he wasn't really big yet, like, in terms of, like, ballooning yet. He was still in shape. He was just, you know, stocky. And when he turned pro, he turned pro with lots of promise, you know what I mean? He had a good record going in, fought good fights and stuff like that, and was getting featured often. But soon enough, man, that's when, you know, the laziness and things of that matter started really kicking in with him, too. Like his weight started ballooning up more and more. At first, he was becoming like two. He was in like the two fifteens, two twenties, two thirties. You know what I mean? By the mid eighties, um, we're talking now. He's still undefeated. By the time he fights Tim Witherspoon, he had ballooned up now to two hundred and sixty-one pounds. Like that's big, you know. And when you see him for Witherspoon, then he was defending his NABF title in that fight. Um, Broad is big, all right. Like. There's no way to say it around it, man. He's a big dude. He was already tall to begin with, but now he's just like girth all around, you know? And for a guy that had good hand, good hand speed, <clears throat> good combinations, good skills, and everything of that matter, now that he's just like getting closer and closer to morbidly obese, um, it's not going to help his cause. So anyways, Witherspoon, for his matter, you know, Witherspoon also had um, commitment issues and a litany of other things going on, mainly Don King on his ass all the time, but Witherspoon obviously was a very, very talented fighter from when he gave Larry Holmes a hell of a shock to becoming the two-time champion in the 80s, yada, yada, yada. Um, so in 85, when James Broad ends up fighting Witherspoon, it was, I want to say it was a crossroads fight, but it was a fight that people were looking upon maybe that Broad's able to beat Witherspoon. He was ready to make that ascend to that next well, step. Where, yeah, and it's, it's two big heavyweights with discipline problems, you know, so. And Witherspoon was already a former champion at this point, too, like. Like, you know, this was before he was about to become champ again and then go to 86. Anyway, so at this point, if Broad was able to beat a former WB, uh, former WBC champion, shit, um, that would have sent him right to a title fight because everything was all wrapped up for that. Instead, he came in, like I said, obese, bro. He's just big, he's sloppy. And I don't know where I read this, and I wish I could find where I read it. I don't think it was an article. I'm pretty sure it was on some message board or comment section. But Someone said before the fight, either they were there or they knew someone that was there that relayed them the story, that before the fight, in the locker room, Broad was all dressed up. He had his, he had his uh, robe on. His hands were all wrapped up. You know what I mean? And he starts shadow boxing. But while he's shadow boxing, mind you this, he's eating a bag of fucking donuts. Okay? <laughs> With his hand wraps on, all right? And I'm talking about, like, the powdered ones you get, you know, like the, the hostess ones or something like that, all right? And they said that he was pounding there and he's sitting there shadow boxing while eating the donuts and the powdered sugar all over his hands and everything like that. I'm not like, I can't say that this is absolutely confirmed story, 
it doesn't sound far, you know, far out of the realm of something that could actually happen. So, anyways, Brad, you know, is allegedly eating donuts beforehand and shadow boxing and talking a lot of shit in between donut bites of what he's going to do to Witherspoon. And um, none of that happened, all right? Instead, what would, you know, what would you think would happen if a person is just pounding donuts minutes before they go into the biggest fight of their career? Well, I mean, it's about like uh, watching, you know, Grim Reaper Rover watching Dolomite. Before. Yes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know what I mean? And um, I, so even though Broad, like I said, he was already showing signs of just being a little, you know, a little funny with his commitment to training and everything like that, he had already suffered a loss to Marvis Frazier come you know up to the witherspoon fight this is still the biggest fight of his career and now now that he's blowing it away he gets blown out in the fight like in round two is one of the most damning things that you'll ever see i'm sure if you people that listen to the show have definitely watched it but if you've never seen it look it up on youtube witherspoon with his classic overhand right that he has just starts bombing the shit out of broad and broad well it's a huge guy at this point starts rocking and rolling all over the ring and it's just not, you know, it looks like a redwood getting ready to tilt and you're just waiting for the inevitable collapse. You're just not sure when it's going to happen. And then finally you just see, boom, he catches him again and Broad just teeters and goes flat. Bow! And the way he crashes and you just see all this shit, just everything just jiggling. Like, you almost expect the ring to collapse. Like, that's how big it was of a drop, you know? And, damn. Brutal, dude. They, the Absolutely guy just, brutal. he got so big. And the crazy shit is that, like, you know, he even got bigger from there. Yes. Yes, absolutely. He always teetered after that from, you know, into the high 260s. And then he started going into the 280s. His last big fight of a high-profile, one on a high-profile card, ended up being against Greg Page in 1987. And at this point, man, Broad is, it's clear his commitment is gone. He's been renamed now Broad Ass by Randy Gordon of Ring Magazine. And that's a nick. I mean, it's not a nice nickname, you know what I mean? But like, and it probably hurt. I feel bad because I probably did fuck with the guy making him hear that. And then everyone started taking it and using it. Um, like, you're familiar with Dave Meltzer, right? The wrestling Observer yeah. guy? Well, when Junkyard Dog, when he started having drug issues and things going on with him in the 80s, he got more, he started getting really, really big. And the physique he had, he just started blowing up. And Dave Meltzer nicknamed him from the junkyard dog to the junk food dog. And everybody started calling him that too, you know. So, um, but back to Broad. By 1987, he's winning fights, he's losing fights. But anytime he really steps up, he's going to lose a decision. He loses to Tony Tucker, loses to uh, Francesco Damiani, another guy who wasn't body beautiful. And um, now he moves into 1987 and he's going to fight Greg Page. Greg Page, we've discussed him plenty of times on various shows. Um, a member of the lost generation of the 80s. Probably a charter, you know, one of the highest members of them. Tremendous skills, but again, commitment issues, other issues, dealing with Don King, the fuckery that he had going on with everything like that. A dude was just, by 87, he was in complete limbo himself. But surprisingly, and this was on the uh, undercard of either... Tyson, Pinklin, Thomas, or Tyson. It's one of the Tyson fights, one of the 80s Tyson fights. But surprisingly, they end up putting on a really, really fun competitive fight. Both of them out of shape. Um, Broad a lot more out of shape than Page. Both of them have jerry curls, and it's just a lot of girth in the ring. You know what I mean? 
But no, but I'll say this. There's a lot of skill going on there too, especially inside fighting. Page had fast hands. Broad had relatively fast hands. Broad was a good inside fighter. And for all of his girth, he still had a lot of skill remaining. And Page, same thing. Page still, you know, was showing a lot of flashes of skill throughout. And they both were trying. It wasn't like lazy. Both of them were really trying. And it made for a really fun, fun fight. You know, like just back and forth throughout and it was a close fight. And Broad actually dropped Page in the last round and almost scored a, you know, a really, really close decision. It was a good fight. Every, like we said this weekend, you know, every so often you get these, uh, get these big boys together and they, they, they put it together action wise, you know, sometimes they don't have a choice. Sometimes it's pretty sloppy though, but, um, fairly notably, you know, I mean, even though he was outweighing him by like a lot of pounds, he also took a points decision over Patrick Lumumba a couple rounds, a couple rounds or a couple months after that. You know, I mean, Patrick Lumumba was like six and one by that point, and he didn't really shake out either. But I also noticed that maybe I just didn't notice this before. Maybe I didn't really like it didn't click in my brain. But in 1991, he defeated Maurice Smith, who was making his debut. Now, that's like, you know, as a boxer, that doesn't really mean shit. But mixed martial arts fans, and I think he might have, I think he might have wrestled for a bit, too. But uh, he was in he was in the early like UFC like Maurice Smith was in some of the early UFC fucking cars, so I, I maybe I just never that never clicked in my brain. But he was making his pro debut apparently, and James Broad totally took him out and apparently got down to two forty six, but then went right up to three thirteen immediately after that. Wow. Yeah, and in between these fights too, because he was having an up and down in career. And the fights he was losing and getting knocked out in, like, he was getting viciously beat up. A lot of these fights, they were once on YouTube, and now since, I don't know, some of them disappeared, some of them are still up there. But, like, the Razor Ruddick fight is particularly brutal. Um, The Johnny Duploy fight, we talked about Duploy, the wild fighter from South Africa who made made some noise in the late 80s. Um, That one's particularly brutal as well. And, yeah, as, as it went on. And in between this two, man, it has to be mentioned, he was one of Mike Tyson's primary sparring partners. Yeah, you can that's find right. that footage on YouTube. And those are brutal sessions. You should see the punishment that Tyson was laying on. Because Tyson, you know, was notorious for not taking it easy on his sparring partners. And his sparring partners being notoriously tough, including Broad. And Broad, God bless him, man. He took a lot of clean punches against Tyson. A lot of them as well as like, as he kept on doing throughout his career. So inevitably, um, after Broad's career ended, man, it was a very sad turnout for him because now he ends up with brain damage. He's morbidly obese and ended up homeless. And um, he ended up dying around 2000, I think, still homeless. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, just another sad, yeah, fairly stereotypical tale. Um, but, you know, he was, he, like you said, was a very notable amateur and had a lot of promise at one time, but just in terms of discipline, couldn't really keep it consistent. And that meant that anytime he, like you said, went up in class, he was basically just couldn't, couldn't pull it, pull it off. He was like, you know, just couldn't get over that hump for the most part, despite those unexpected wins I was just talking about a moment ago. Um, But actually he's a pretty good kind of segue or transition to somebody really, really similar. Um, and also has a Fraser link himself. 
the Fraser Olympic link, who is one of the OG big boys for sure. And that's Buster Mathis. That's right. OG that's Buster right. Mathis. Yeah, man. Yeah. I never until we until the other day when I Googled them, I never saw those photos and how big he actually got. I I don't remember who had somebody I thought it was you, but apparently not. But somebody had posted them, tweeted them, something, and I was like, holy Yowza. I didn't realize that he had gotten that large. Um like you can sell you can see in its face it's him totally, but like I didn't know that's <laughs> yeah, I mean and you know, I'm, we're not even trying to like make fun like that. It's just oh, damn. It was but, crazy. Yeah. And on top of that, like you know, that was also one of the. It was one of the storylines, of like about him, when he was uh, an amateur all the way throughout his pro career. It was pretty much recognized that he was fairly skilled. He was a pretty good fighter. It was just like, why is he not coming in in better shape? Especially, you know, I, I think that it was probably back in back in the day that people were just like, you know, uh, the idea of like taking steroids and stuff like that, stuff like that was fairly foreign and whatnot. So it was just assumed that if you were a fighter, you were probably going to be in fairly good shape unless you were just, you know, a slob also ran, which he wasn't. He was a high level fighter. Buster Mathis was going to be on the Olympic team. He was going to be on the 1964 team. And originally, he was going to be the U.S. representative who beat Joe Frazier in the, in the finals. But again, man, Buster Mathis, even back then as an amateur, already carried, um, like, you know, the, the hang tag of being like a lazy guy and maybe, you know, an underachiever and stuff like that. So there were whispers already that after he beat Frazier that people were wondering, hey, man, stay on. You know, they told Frazier, stay in the gym, stay working out. We have a feeling he might not even try to go through. And Frazier even said, I believe in his autobiography, he mentioned that Buster Mathis was complaining that he didn't want to go to Tokyo. It was like, you know, making grumblings and rumblings that he didn't really, you know, want to go through with it. But soon, you know, never um, soon enough, he suffers a broken thumb, allegedly or whatever. And um, so after he fell off with that, yeah, Frazier ends up going and um, Frazier ended up, um, you know, scoring the gold medal. So when that happened, you know, with their career directory now, like Frazier was the one that was going to turn pro and he had, luckily he had the backing of Cloverlee with him and Buster Mathis was the one that was going to, he turned pro with fanfare, but at the same time, it wasn't the same that if you had gone to Tokyo. Well, and, uh, I mean, one... wasn't on that actually, he said he injured, I know he said something that he injured that couldn't, that made him forfeit the Olympics. I think so. Something with his hand. Yeah. yeah. One writer said that he floats like a baby elephant and stings like a bee. Broke his hand. That's what it was. Frazier, I know, broke his thumb. Yeah. It's full said he floats like a baby elephant and stings like a bee. It would, you, which, especially because right around that time, 1964, would have been when uh, Muhammad Ali won the heavyweight title. So he would have been, you know, the biggest story in sports and everybody would have been, you know, saying some shit. All the kids would have been saying that shit on the street, you know, float like a butterfly, you know boxing with each other and shit like that so you know i mean uh, it was obviously recognized very early in his career that there's there's probably going to be problems and there's actually youtube video of uh buster mathis versus joe frazier too there's it's up on youtube so you know you could see that even then even in the amateurs he's a big dude a very big dude there's photos of him like roller skating and shit like that and the guy's just large oh yeah absolutely he was massive but you know, he was an anomaly, too, because people would see him, and you would think a guy that girth and everything like that, 
you would think he would just be like a waiting slugger or really slow and kind of clumsy, whatever. And he was none of that, man. He was graceful as can be. He was really quick on his fan, uh, fans. He was really quick on his feet. He had extremely fast hands and was a really, you know, for an amateur, man, he was a nut, tough as hell to beat. And that's why he had Frazier's number because Frazier, who was much more suited for the pros, you know, Buster Mathis, the way he boxed and stuff like that, that was going to be a nightmare style for him regardless. And um, yeah, Mathis was like kind of confounded audiences because if people weren't familiar with him, and then you see a guy and you see his body weight, you see his chest and the the folds that come over him, stuff like that. And you're wondering, and you're like, oh God, what am I watching here? And then you see him start dancing around. You see him using that jab and combinations. You're like, the fuck? <laughs> yeah, dude, it was, it was definitely unexpected. Absolutely no question. But like, you know, also he was, he came at the wrong time, dude. Like, even if he had been in much, much better shape, he would have had a hell of a time during that era in, in the uh, late 1960s, early 70s, regardless yeah, of what he was clearly a step, He was going to clearly be a rung below them all. And by the time, you know, we discussed the last time we were talking about um, the splintering of the heavyweight championship, and we mentioned how the WBA held their separate tournament, and then the New York State Athletic Commission with a few other states chimed in as well. Um decided that, you know, hold Joe Frazier, a vacant title fight between Joe Frazier and Buster Mathis Sr. And this was the rematch from the Olympic trials. And, you know, a lot of fanfare for this one because both guys were undefeated coming into this. And Mathis, the same thing, like he kind of, for the first few rounds of the fight, it kind of looked like a carbon copy of their of their uh, amateur bout. You know, Mathis was outboxing him and looking good. You know I mean? In the early part of it, Frazier was kind of struggling. But this isn't the amateurs anymore after a certain time you know joe frazier pressure is going to roll you over and this is a prime joe frazier we're talking he hasn't quite hit his peak yet but he's right about to hit it and eventually mathis was folded man. and once mathis went down you saw that too that was a splayed knockdown the way frazier took him out yeah dude he uh i mean that that version of joe frazier was obviously you know had had learned from a couple of early difficulties, like for instance, against Oscar Bonavena, and had learned that he needed to move his head a little bit more. He needed to, you know, uh, basically perfect his style because, you know, most people know his style by now. I'm not going to go th through and explain it, but in any case, uh, yeah, he was vulnerable. He obviously could be outboxed in stretches, sometimes outworked, but you just could not let him inside, couldn't let him get a hold of you, couldn't let him start muscling on you and stuff like that because you were going to be in deep, deep shit. And, you, and Buster Mathis could not fend him off for that long. You know, eventually he started fading. And obviously, you know, you, there have been guys uh, in the past who were kind of flabby or didn't really look that good but fought surprisingly well, like a James Tony. Maybe we'll talk about him or something like that too. But regardless... Uh, point is like it's it wears on you dude you can't carry that weight and it have it not affect you and that's what wound up happening against joe frazier apart from joe frazier chopping him down too totally man it's just a combination of the two and late in the rounds too you try to keep that pace of frazier just constantly hounding you it's gonna take fold and he just folded from that it wasn't bad it wasn't a bad performance though it was respectable enough that people still had some hope for him but like you said, man, he proved as the turn of the turn of the decade into the 70s that he was still going to be at rung below. And his biggest win of his career was against another guy who was probably shop one by that time and George Travallo. And he outboxed Travallo comprehensively pretty easily. But immediately after beating Travallo, you know, again, 
you get, you get a good win, you're going to step up again. You're probably going to lose it. Steps up against Jerry Corey. We talked about Corey in one of our last shows and how, you know, uh, Mathis was a rung below that. Corey was right, but, you know, you got the very top of the division. Corey was right there. A guy like Mathis is right over there. And Corey proved that in the ring, too. Won a pretty comprehensive decision against him. And same thing. Whenever Mathis, you know, really tried to do it, he would kind of end up losing. His last, uh, soon after that, he faced Muhammad Ali. And his career is more or less over at that point. But I will mention this, man. And it's a fight that has to be mentioned. Because if you want to talk about a fight, it fights a battle of the blimps. He makes a comeback. Um, a few, uh, not almost a year after the Ali fight, and he ends up fighting another very, very big man himself, and a guy by the name of Claude Humphrey McBride. <laughs> yeah, off of the Oklahoma City circuit. Yes, the whole um, you know, Pat O'Grady town. Um, yeah, he's got the Midwest behind him. Yeah, 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 exactly. And that fight was for the World Super Heavyweight Championship. <laughs> oh, of course, bro. <laughs> You know, I, I I thought that, yeah, it probably was Pat O'Grady. The Fairgrounds even... International Building in Oklahoma, you know, the Fairgrounds International Building. Claude Humphrey McBride was a six feet, four inch, 400 pound door to door Bible salesman when he knocked on the door of fight promoter Pat O'Grady in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma in 1969. O'Grady was impressed by <laughs> at McBride's size and asked him if he had ever done any boxing. Turned out McBride had indeed boxed a little as an amateur some 20 years earlier. O'Grady asked McBride if he'd like to return to the ring this time as a professional. And just like that, the professional career of Claude Humphrey, Humphrey McBride began. So, yeah, you were spot the fuck on, really. And that's that sounds about right for Pat O'Grady. So that's fantastic. It's, it's hilarious. But Humphrey McBride, um, there's very few photos of him available, but he was a guy that wore polka dots. <laughs> I saw that right now. Yeah, yeah he was straight up Dusty Rhodes style. And um, I don't know, man. I, I, you know, anyways, um, Mathis was obviously a career level above a guy like Humphrey McBride and stopped him in a couple of rounds. But that maneuvered him into a fight with a rampaging Ron Lyle. And that, you know, Lyle emphatically ended his career. But Mathis, you know, he was a guy, again, he, he's, if, if you were a fan of boxing back then, you definitely remembered him. He had a presence. He wasn't a, he wasn't a top contender, but he was a fringe contender. And he probably would have done well in other errors. But like you said, when you turn in the 70s and look what he had to go against, clearly he wasn't going to make it to the top. But um, actually, yeah. you know, fast forward a couple of decades later, and his son comes into the picture now. About the master buster, Mathis Jr. Not as big as dad. But still, you know, a pretty girth, a pretty big guy himself, and a fighter that came from the school of Customato. So you know, people got to see the whole ducking and dodging types, peekaboo style again. And um, another fighter too that, like, you know, for a guy his size, he wasn't the size of his dad. He wasn't as tall and he wasn't as wide, but still, you know, a big guy himself. He was pretty slick in there, man. He was a fast fighter. He had fast hands, and um, you know, he had good head movement. Yeah, he was pretty uh he was pretty busy on the amateur scene like I mean he was a I don't know that he was like a really good amateur but he was busy on the amateur scene. He was fairly well known and on top of that uh they had settled in Grand Rapids. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just not not saying Buster Mathis Jr is like another great fighter from Grand Rapids, but Grand Rapids actually has a much uh, you know, more rich boxing heritage than people might might uh, you know, 
acknowledge at some at some points but in any case yeah dude there were a few points at which i mean i didn't even look at the weight but there were a few points at which he looked you know like he had some extra weight on him and yeah especially considering he was six foot at like 235 that's too heavy for sure even against uh even against mike tyson dude it was pretty clear that he was like not in the greatest shape you know and he, for whatever reason, man, he was able to get out of, like, having losses. If you look at his career, it was always odd. So, like, his first loss should have been to um, Mike the Bounty Hunter, who very, you know, a fringe contender of the early mid-90s. Very tough guy, very awkward guy, and um, the the dad of uh, contender Michael Hunter um, today. Yeah. Very good fighter, though. If you look back at some of his old stuff, man, had a vicious-ass knockout. Solid record, yeah. Solid record, good guy. So... He loses to Mike Hunter in a USBA title fight. Hunter um, Hunter tested positive for uh, God knows what. Uh, probably weed or something stupid. So Hunter tested positive for that. Fight gets changed to a no contest, no decision. Um, soon after, you know, after a few years, a few years, uh, about a year or so later, he ends up fighting Riddick Bo in uh, Bo's comeback um, <clears throat> after losing to Evander Holyfield. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, another really odd fight. Because Mathis had no business really going in with a guy like Bo. That was more Cedric Kushner, who was back in Mathis back then, probably maneuvering him into that fight. Because Cedric was able to get a lot of his fighters uh, HBO dates back then. So, you know, Mathis having an undefeated record, being the USBA champion, being featured on um, heavyweight explosion cards, a lot of them. And trust me, I watched them all because I was cataloging this shit. Um, <laughs> he, ends up, he ends up getting a shot at Riddick Bo. And I remember watching this with my dad, too. The fight happened in 1994, and my dad was kind of like, oh, who's this blob fighting Bo? Like, he was not really convinced about it. But, like, Mathis, you know, he was clearly rungs below Bo. But, again, it was an odd fight that Mathis gets dropped, and it looks like Bo is just going to have a, comp- you know, an easy romp. And then Bo decides to get stupid and ends up hitting Mathis while he's down. And, like, clearly he did it a few seconds. It wasn't like it was, you know, in the middle of throwing a punch. He dropped him, kind of looked at him, and hit him with a combination and knocked him out. Not Roy like, Jones was bad. At, yeah, just he couldn't have fucking help himself. Like he just Terry Norris, everybody just like Terry Norris. He just like dude, like he yeah, kicked man. him or punched him or something. Like there's always some shit. And so, anyways, that fight becomes a no contest. So Mathis somehow is still undefeated. All right, going into the 1995, uh, and after a number of wins, he ends up becoming you know Mike Tyson's opponent. And I'm sure you watched that on Fox as much as everybody did because that was one of those fights that I think the whole world watched it, Rob. Yep, dude. I remember that shit. Like, not super clearly, but I remember the end and everything. Like, I don't remember the buildup and stuff, but yeah. Well, it was a massive buildup. There was... It was weird. Yeah, dude. It, 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 it didn't really make... A, it was obviously a big contrast, you know, looking at Buster Mathis Jr. then looking at Mike Tyson, who at that point, you know, somewhat fresh out of prison was being made to be the scariest person on the face of the planet and then you look at buster mathis jr it was like oh mike's gonna fucking fold this guy in half and he you know pretty much did and yeah mike didn't look good in that fight at all no he didn't really look good until he basically pulled it out of the bag you know what i mean like well kind of tough to say that in like three rounds but still he didn't look great it was kind of like the botha fight he didn't really look great and then just kind of pulled it out but in any case yeah like but it wasn't a ringing endorsement of buster mathis jr either you know no no but mathis to his credit he ducked and dodged he made he made tyson 
look bad for a couple of rounds. But once he got hit really hard, I mean, look, and that was a solid shot. That was one hey. of those Tyson bombs that will take anybody out. So he's but no would, Frankie yeah, Swindell. Absolutely not, not, definitely not. And um, I will say this: after that fight, I think that was one of the first times where I realized to myself that even that, even in my infancy as being a boxing fan, I kind of knew watching that. I was like, "Wow, Mike ate the Mike of old," and that made me realize when he ended, especially when he fought Evander Holyfield, and I picked Holyfield to win that fight, and all my friends and boxing trainer and my dad and everyone else thought I was a big idiot, and then you know ends up doing what he did but that was like the the beginning of it because tyson didn't look like shit in that fight and there's a couple of backstories with that fight too man not to go too up course but like mathis and his manager were in they thought they were going to get a certain amount of money and then at the 12th hour of before the fight apparently mathis's manager gets summoned to cedric kushner's room and Cedric said that he wasn't able to pay them the amount that he needed and that, like, take a pay cut for the fight or something like that. They weren't going to do it. There was all kinds of arguing and some kind of shim-sham going on, and finally the fight still goes through. Like, I don't know. The whole thing was a fiasco, but it's the mid-'90s and Mike Tyson, and Mike Tyson's life at that point was a fiasco, so. Yeah, absolute train wreck. So probably shouldn't be any surprise that exactly anything untoward happening there. Ridiculous. No, nah, totally. And, um, but yeah, so after that, man, you know, Mathis gets a cup, got a, got an HBO date against Obed Sullivan and soon after losing Lou Savarese, but to his credit, it wasn't, it's a respectable career against some good names. So. Yeah. It's actually not, neither of the Buster Mathises had uh, bad careers, you know, they just, I guess both of them lacked discipline on, on some level. But, and they had good backstories too, like the whole father yeah. son thing and what was going on, and Buster Mathis somehow still being alive, because I know he had suffered a bunch of heart attacks up to that point and had other health issues. So, yeah, dude, wild shit for sure. Totally. But lest anyone think that we're just picking on like large in that way fighters, I'm gonna take it back to the 1920s and 30s to a fighter who, at least at that time, was considered large. But not really. But nonetheless, the, a dude who was born in Italy, but I think of Croatian descent, Arthur Dika. So dude was not that big, but they were always writing about this guy as a giant. And so, of course, I had to go, I had to go do some searching and stuff like that. Because to be totally honest, we talked about this, this uh, subject before, but I was like struggling. I was like, damn, you know, I remember fighters we brought up before, but like I want to talk about some new shit too. You know, like I want to talk about some new fighters. And so I was looking around on like the newspaper archives and shit like that. And I'm like, all right, biggest fighters, heaviest fighters, fattest fighters and stuff like that. Cause just seeing like who, who was writing about what mm-hmm. and Arthur Deca was a fighter. They were always talking about as a giant or the heaviest fighter or biggest fighter. And anyway, he wasn't that big, but uh, he was born in Italy. I think of Croatian descent, I guess like I, it would make sense. Cause he was born in Trieste, Italy, which is right near the border of Italy near Croatia and Slovenia. But the re- only reason why that kind of popped up in my head is because another Italian fighter who fought out of Trieste, you know, our boy Nino Benvenuti, uh, he was actually born in Slovenia. So that kind of why it's like, oh, I connected that in my head. But anyway, he wasn't big because he was like by today's standards, like at all. He was like 6'3", 220, 230. So not that big. But in the 1920s or 30s, that was like, oh, my God, this guy is so huge, especially if they could fight. I think it was kind of just like, holy shit. But um, 
I think that a lot of it was just he was referred to as a giant by the way promoters exaggerate like you know just like how they do in pro wrestling too there was calling Andre the giant like seven foot three and seven foot five and shit like that and in reality he was like don't get me wrong fucking massive at like 610 or whatever it was but he wasn't like as big as they said and the same probably the same type of shit here you know the guy wasn't that that much of a giant and especially because there was another dude at the time coming up primo carnera who was also italian he just wasn't heavyweight champion yet he was just still kind of like just just getting famous and i think it hadn't quite made the rounds yet how massive this dude was because they would like literally send him on publicity tours where primo carnera would just go out in public and people would just walk up to him and be like what the fuck and he'd hold out his hands and people, massive, yeah, people are like you know like with their little teeny hands on his hands and people were like oh my god so it, that's the crazy thing to me is like primo carnera also existed so this dude wasn't the giant and you knew that but even so uh, it was fairly interesting that they were both italian and they actually tried to match them and the funny thing was uh so arthur deca was supposed to get in there with primo carnera and what they were gonna do was they were like, all right, well, let's run Arthur Deca through George Godfrey, you know, uh, the Laperville Shadow, not Old Chocolate, 1800s fighter. But no, um, Jack Dempsey's fine partner. Yeah, exactly. And uh, in any cases, they were like, well, let's get this win over George Godfrey, and that definitely did not happen whatsoever. And George Godfrey scored a fourth-round knockout and knocked him down like half dozen times in the process, and like not like real hard. And so that kind of like marked a downturn in his career and the Primo Carnera fight never happened because Carnera went on to become heavyweight champion. So anyway, I, I found that at least interesting and I had to bring up something that I was like, all right, he's not going to bring up this one. I had to, I had to find something. Oh, totally, totally. <laughs> um, I mean, when you talk about guys that are massive, you don't have to talk exactly what you said about just being absolute girth. You know what I mean? They can be massive in other ways like... For instance, I was watching um, Joe Frazier's last professional fight the other night, right? Just random. Oh, yeah. I don't know why I didn't have to watch it, but I was just wanted to watch a little bit of it. So if you want to talk about massive, talk about a dude who might have been the most cut, ripped, shredded, body beautiful heavyweight ever, Jumbo Cummings. Like, that dude was a beast. That dude right? was large. Yes. And just... <laughs> not an ounce of fat on him like you can just take a bat and it would probably break if you try to hit his body with it like that type you know what i mean so in it in the late in the late 70s early 80s when cummings was coming like he was in jail i'm not i'm just bringing him up i'm not going to go through his whole life but like he's a guy that went through a lot of stuff in his life um was in and out of jail and mostly in jail so when he got locked up for a long time at one point he realized at that point you know what i'm gonna like dedicate myself to just working out and he just went through like an insane insane workout we're talking james uh james scott style where you like wake up in the morning do 3,000 push-ups run a few miles do an incredible amount of push-ups pull-ups this and that like whatever you can do and you're just pretty soon you're benching close to 400 and just looking like you know an adonis and the way Cummings looked in, his, in the ring, because he had, like, you know, he wore the knee-high socks that were, like, kind of popular and the, the tube socks that were popular in the early 80s and with his trunks and stuff like that. He was, like, a bigger club of lame, you know? 
like Mr. T, the way he looked in Rocky Three and how he was just absolutely shredded. Think about that, but then think of Cummings <clears throat> and just like to the next level, and that was Jumbo Cummings, like an absolute just animal. The, like the only in terms of physique and heavyweights and stuff like that obviously there have been really you know heavyweights that have been in very good shape so i don't want to like, and, play or, like and that, but mike weaver and cleveland williams cleveland williams was fucking like you know like like when they like sculpt fucking bodies and shit like that it's just like holy shit um but yeah dude floyd cummings was just a large diesel fucking yoked fool you know what i'm saying scary but, looking man absolutely yeah. scary. like a guy you didn't i mean obviously you didn't want to go see him on a street corner but just in general like if you see him and you make eye contact or if you're at the gym you're getting up and letting him use the equipment like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh were you using yeah sure sure bro nah man these are, these are your pull no, no 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 i was done i was done anyway yeah and too bad though man because like as body beautiful as it was it didn't really translate in the ring like he was a good fighter he had made for some competitive fights but he was clearly a rung below everybody else when it came to the 80s and um the closest he came was against completely shot joe frazier so when frazier was making a comeback it was rumbling since like 77 78 that frazier was trying to come back all right and there was talk at one point he was going to fight ernie shavers which i Man, that might have been really bad for Frazier. Um, <sighs> yeah, man. That right hand he landed on Holmes, on Frazier. Well, Fra I mean, Ernie Shavers, that by 1978, was cooking. You know what I mean? He lost a close decision to Ali in 77, and then he lost a wide decision to Holmes in 78, but then he came back and knocked the absolute shit out of Norton. So this would have been around the same time. And what he did in Norton, yeah, he, he was on a roll at that point. What do you think he would have done to Frazier? So then – Soon after that, Frazier was going to fight Cali Notzi. And we've talked plenty of times about how much of a knucklehead Notzi is. But at this point, probably would have been a bad style matchup for Frazier, too, because Notzi was a rampaging guy who was really strong, and Frazier was completely shot for him. That fight falls through because Frazier, I think, um, contacted hepatitis or something. So, anyways, things keep on, you know, rumors, whatever. Finally, in 1981, Frazier finally is going to make that comeback. And now he's going to fight uh, Jumbo Cummings. And Cummings' his only loss, I think, at this point was to Ronaldo Snipes, who was a young up-and-comer himself, who'd go on to be a contender. And But it was just like one of those fights that you're just kind of like, okay, well, it's morbid curiosity, but no one really wanted to pick it up either. No one was trying to watch it. Uh, it ended up being on somewhere in the outskirts of Chicago, and I'm not even sure who televised it. Like, it just, you know, it was an afterthought. People just thought it was like a freak show, like Ali coming back to fight Burbick. Like, you guys, please just stop. But... Anyways, it happens. Um, Frazier goes the distance, and they just give him clearly as a gift and almost to say, like, don't, you know, we won't let you lose over here, but just please, if we give you the straw, retire. And that's what happens. So he retires. But coming soon after that, you know, he was almost like a stepping stone. Like, anytime he really stepped up, he'd lose. But he always put on fun fights. The only one where he got completely splayed, knocked out, was against um, Jeff Sims. Like, Sims... I've only seen the briefest of clips on it. Well, if you watch the beginning of the intro of Tyrell Biggs against Jeff Sims, Lampley, um, Jim Lampley is like narrating some stuff. And then he mentions Jeff Sims and they showed the, a clip of it. And it's just a monster right hand because Sims was a monster puncher. And, you know, Jumbo Cummings goes from a mass of muscles to a bowl of porridge for one second, just 
splayed out, you know. Bigger they are, harder they fall, dude, you know. But his last fight, his last fight of his career, he fights another guy who was completely yoked and shredding himself, too, and I forgot we should have mentioned him as well, Frank Bruno. That's um, true, yeah. 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 Good old Frank Bruno. He was always in really, really good shape, yeah. Still is, man. Bruno is always just ripped. And in their fight, Bruno gets caught with a monster in the first round. You know, Bruno's undefeated and should be a step, uh, coming should be a step so. But in that first round, Bruno gets caught with a right hand at the very end of the round, completely gone. His legs are gone. He just stands there, kind of stiff legged. And you hear the announcers like a decade later when they talk about Harold Graham, they go, Oh no, oh no. And they go, Bruno's finished. He's done. <laughs> like, he's, like, there's like, he's out. He's out on his feet. Oh no, how's he going to recover from this? <laughs> Bang on the chin. And they're like, Lawless has to put water on him. Terry Lawless, he has to, oh, he has work to do. And yet Bruno is gone. His eyes are like, he's spinning around. He takes a, like his mouth opens up. He takes a big yawn because he's just like, what the fuck? He's, you know, he's gone. But to his credit, he comes back and knocks out Cummings. And Cummings' career is over. But like, yeah, man, I just, you know, not when we talk about massive guys, they don't have to be obese. They sometimes they just be ripped to shreds. And Cummings is one of the most imposing figures in heavyweight history. Not, you know, his record was nondescript and he lost most of his big fights. But when it just comes to absolute physiques, that dude was a unit. Yeah, that dude was large. That's for sure. He was a massive, massive dude. It's just that just, you know, generally speaking, that kind of musculature doesn't translate that well to boxing. Just because, you know, physiologically speaking, that kind of muscle needs a shitload of blood and oxygen, which means you're fucking gasping, you know, a couple rounds into the fight. Anthony Joshua, Frank Bruno, these dudes have learned this the hard way I mean, more look, than one man, time. Couldn't knock out Joe Frazier in 1981. Right? Brutal, dude. Yeah, I mean, unfortunate, dude. Super unfortunate. Well, that Frazier ended up in that position, I guess. But I mean, Joe had, you know, sadly, the singing. Look, man, it, was, it was totally, I've said this before and I'll say it again. It was totally for the best that both of them didn't win their last fights. Because Don King got no for absolutely positive that Don King would have tried to make Frazier Ali four. No, no shit, doubt dude. in my mind. <laughs> no fucking shit. Absolutely. Either him or Aaron or somebody would have tried to make a Frazier Ali four. Hey, you both won. Look out, what about it, guys? Well, the only upside to that would have been like that would have just been another Frazier Ali fight for you to have a fucking vintage shirt of. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's true. Yeah. It's true. I got a I got another fighter though. That's a that's a pretty good one. And I thought I thought about that, but I was like, nah, I won't bring that one up. So I'm glad that you brought that one up because I wasn't going to. But <laughs> one that I uh I it just totally randomly came to me. And I was like, oh damn, that's a good one. Cause it's kind of in left field a little bit, but totally fits the description here. And that's Pia Wolfgram. Yes. Totally. Definitely a large foo. Definitely a large dude. Tongan fighting out of New Zealand, uh, 1996 Olympic silver medalist, lost in the finals to Vladimir Klitschko, and in in the Olympics, in order to get to the finals, he had to defeat Duncan Dokiwari, which I who I know you're familiar with, because yeah, didn't he fight for a few uh, Cedric? I'm, yeah, and I think um, he I'm was pretty also, sure he did. Oh, absolutely, and he was also featured on a boxing after dark. Yep. Yeah, because they yeah. had that like it was like young heavyweights or yeah, whatever yeah. card. Like, and... 
a number of years after the whole, after the, the Tua, David Tua, John Weeze, Shannon Britton, you know, that card. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They did the second young heavyweights, young heavyweights, because this one they featured Juan Carlos Gomez in the first fight. <laughs> um, Duncan Dokaware, who wasn't really young at this point, against Dominic Gwynn. And then uh, Macy, Macy against uh, Devera Williamson. So, yeah. That's right. Yeah. And Devera Williamson was also like 37 or something yes. by that point. Yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't really stretching the young factor there, guys. But they were also pushing, I think, Messi. You know, they weren't really pushing mm-hmm. Devera. But, but even so, um, yeah, no, that's, a, that's true. Yeah. And Duncan Dokiwari, he had to beat Sarhei Lajovic, who went on to hold the WBO heavyweight title and also, you know, uh, a really, really, really good fight with uh, Lehman Brewster. Um, and also a heavily favored Cuban fighter named Alexis Rubalcaba, who yes. was like, he was supposedly at the time favored to win it all. And yeah, Pia Wolfgram was not expected to beat him. And when he did, it was a massive celebration in uh, New Zealand and you know, in Tonga because he was there representing Tonga. Mm-hmm. And in any case, uh, he was also during that Olympics, the 1996 Olympics, he was the heaviest fighter in the Olympics. Oh, by far, man. You saw the photos of him in that. It so, was so they, I mean when they he mentioned fits it, the bill. Boxing Digest did a pretty comprehensive review on the entire Olympic Games. They they listed all the fights, they did a fight by fight of, you know, who won the gold and all this other stuff, and they talked about how big of like um how big of a story Wolfram was, you know, coming out of nowhere basically and winning a silver. Like what the fuck? Like no one knew that was gonna happen. Man, that and they mentioned like, like two thousand. Yeah, Rubicaba was like a big, big favorite for that whole thing. And for him to lose like that was was big. That was huge. Yeah, those profiles, maybe I'm wrong and maybe I just overlooked them, but I feel like they stopped in for like the two thousand Olympics because okay. I just don't like I, I feel like, you know, I used, I knew a lot more about especially other fighters who weren't just American fighters. Totally, totally. And then, like, in, like, the early 2000s, it was like they kind of just stopped covering them. I mean, maybe that's what it was. But in any case, yeah, like, so I remember hearing Wolf Graham's name and shit like that and, like, kind of, I don't know, from the Olympics, but in any case, knowing of him. Well, I believe also, too, he was signed. Wasn't he signed to America Presents? That's a good, I don't know. Maybe he was. I almost, wouldn't surprise well, I me. I think he was, man, because I know he was featured on TV, and like I want to say he was a little, a little bit, like something. Anyways, though, he it was, it was he didn't have a bad career. His career didn't really pan out, obviously, like that. He ended up fighting Klitschko in a rematch. I remember of their Olympic final, and Klitschko yep. stopped him. I think in one or so, but like, you know, yeah, and it wasn't that wasn't one I was gonna bring up. <laughs> It was just kind of ugly too. It wasn't even like a he wasn't like a clean one punch knockout or anything like that. He just kind of like clubbed him into into submission, like against the ropes, and he was like, uh, went down and couldn't couldn't quite beat the ten count. And I mean, look, dude, getting knocked out by Vladimir Klitschko, there's no shame in that. The guy was a massive puncher, just a, a massive guy in his own fucking right. So I mean, uh, that he wasn't a heavyweight champion by that by that point. I don't think so. No, he wasn't because he got that from. Now he got that later on. But um, in any case, yeah, that was I would imagine one of the heavier fights as far as weight goes between two fighters. For sure, for sure. Upper level, anyway. Um, another fighter from that era, I guess too. Ooh, you can bring I'm, up. I'm sorry. Oh, one last thing, I I totally forgot. His last fight was against Corey T. Rex Sanders, 292 pounds versus 290 pounds. Wolf Graham, that is. 
Yeah, T Rex Sanders was a big boy himself, man. He was huge. Yeah, I was a. Uh... Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, totally, man. You can bring up Samson Pahua from that era as well. That's true. Yeah. You know, most, most you know, most well known for um getting bit by injury. <laughs> yeah. <Wow>. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, dude, he made his he made the rounds, the heavyweight. So it was it's kind of not fair yeah. that that's what he's remembered for. But I still. mean, it's just such a it's such an infamous moment though. Like Galata, because it, it, it's so blatant. Like the camera was right there, and Galata full went on Dracula on his ass. And just, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. He didn't even like hide it or nothing. People who were just writhe and pain like how did he not get disqualified man the teeth marks were there it was bad but yeah he was he was pretty he was he was pretty big for that fight and then um his other notable fight as well is uh when he ended up fighting jesse ferguson one of my favorites on uh boxing after dark and um ferguson you know put on a really good performance for himself too man ferguson was cooking near the end of his career a nice little run near the end there and Ferguson, you know, put in some nice body shots at the end, hit him with a right hand or another hook, and Pahua just went down, got counted out. And Ferguson had a nice little interview at the end of the at the end of the fight, where like he was like, "Look, man, you know, I know I'm never gonna be a Hall of Famer." He was like, "No, I'm never gonna be a world champion or all of, like pound for pound, whatever." But he was like, "You know, just keep this in mind." He said, "Nobody's ever given me anything." He was like, "I work for everything I got." He was like, "I just give you my best." And Larry Merchant was like, you're a Hall of Famer in my book, man. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Because he could tell Larry always liked him and kind of respected him, you know. But yeah. um, another guy that I'll bring up, um, another 80s heavyweight. Well, that's actually, I want to say more 70s because his career ended in, in 1980, 81. But Leroy Jones. Okay. All yeah. right, then. You know, Leroy Jones. Um late 70s he's that's when he that's when i would say he emerged he was a former new york golden gloves champion a guy who another one man if you looked at his body you wonder what the hell because he was another dude he was really tall he was big but he was just like really heavy set you know and um but he could box another guy that wasn't a slug or anything like that he wasn't as graceful as i would say buster mathis was footwork wise but he had fast hands he had a good jab and he knew how to box and he put up a really good record there in the late seventies. All right, so two New York Golden Gloves championships, uh, nineteen seventy-one heavyweight novice championship, nineteen seventy-two heavyweight open championship, and I mean nobody famous on his record that I see, but not, I mean on the amateur record that is, but still, I mean you know obviously if you're, it's kind of tough. Like we've talked about this before, it's kind of tough to discern these days. Because winning a Golden Gloves, like now, not to say that it's bad, it's obviously good, but back in the day, it was like if you were a Golden Gloves winner, and especially if you were like a multiple-time Golden Gloves winner, that seemed to be a pretty decent predictor, like you were going to go on to be a pretty good fighter. And that's not to say that, you know, Leroy Jones looking at his record, 25-1-1, 13 knockouts, it's not a bad record at all. But nonetheless, you know, it's generally speaking, back in the day, if you won the Golden Gloves, it meant that you were going to go on to big things. And but I'm still not sure if anyone like I'm not I'm not sure how much fanfare he had when he turned pro either. You know what I mean? Because if you saw the way his physique and how he looked and stuff, I think people weren't really sold on him and just thought that he was going to have a limited, you know, future ahead of him. Even though he was, even though he showed the skill he did when New York Golden Gloves, because again, that's never easy, especially during when he was winning them. So, 
he turns pro and you know he was he's based out of denver but like he was fighting in denver colorado in the early days he was also fighting in the seedy back ends of vegas not on the strip but places like you know the silver slipper and uh the silver slipper one of those old um casinos that used to mm-hmm. hold place every wednesday and they would feature guys from contenders to prospects to absolute you know journeyman fighters but Oh, it was usually competitive fights, man. They were held every Wednesday for a number of years. And yeah, it's a cool it's a cool little venue that like, you know, completely smoke filled when you went in there and everything like that. But this was the type of place where Jones was like, you know, getting his uh his his um his boots wet, so to speak, right? You know, cutting his teeth. And he's going through the circuit, he's beating guys over there, Denver Silver Slipper still. His first big win, I guess would you uh, I would say, was against uh Jody Ballard. You know what I mean? Um fringe contender um gatekeeper so to speak of the of the division back then but still a few other guys he was able to beat at that point too roy cookie wallace who was another uh you know another guy that didn't have a great record but a very tough guy himself and a gatekeeper john dino dennis who was from massachusetts um had a very inflated record but did have good skills and is best known for getting bludgeoned by george foreman and um jerry cooney but these are the guys he's been able to get on his record. Finally, he hits pay dirt in 78. He beats Mike Weaver for the NABF title. And that's when he, that's when people start, like, you know, actually, even though Jones, again, he's still getting joked on and, you know, people talking about his physique or whatever, but people are respecting him as well. Weaver still had a bad record. He was still kind of going through, like, you know, an in-between phase of being a part-time fighter and a full-time fighter. But he was moving along more towards being a full-time fighter at this point. So Jones being able to beat him, you know, is a good feather in his cap. So after a few more wins at the turn of 1980, that's when he's able to get a title shot with Larry Holmes. Yeah, dude, beating beating Mike Weaver at that stage was like, you know, he he had a tough time staying consistent himself. And so, but he did have a few nice little stretches where he was able to put together like a handful of wins and stuff like that. So it meant something. Beating Mike Weaver wasn't. No, it didn't. Weaver at that point, like I said, he had a bad record, but he was on the upswing at this point by 78. Before that, you know, he was a part-time fighter. Like he was only taking fights more or less to pay the bills or whatever else he had to do. He wasn't there to like, you know, um, to really taking it seriously. When Weaver started taking it seriously, he was working as a sparring partner for Ken Norton. And Norton, who nicknamed him Hercules, um, kind of told him, like, dude, you actually got, like, legit skills here, man. Why don't you really take this? And he's like, oh, you really think so? Yeah, please, man. Take it seriously. And as he started to, and then he hooked up with um, then he hooked up with Ray Barnes, a former pro who fought Sugar Ray Robinson, and got a good manager under himself. That's when his career took off. But, so, yeah, that was a good win for Leroy Jones. And But by the time he fought Larry Holmes in 1980, this is, again, we're talking, this is early 1980. Holmes is still bitter. He's pissed off. Muhammad Ali is still pestering him at this time. Ali's making rumblings about, yeah, it's true. You know what I mean? Just, um, yeah, he's still fighting so, in his shadow. And yeah, he's, he's fighting in his quite shadow. His respect. Exactly. And anytime that he feels like he's about to get some respect and do something, Ali appears out of nowhere and starts fucking with him again. And he's just, Holmes is just mad. The public don't like him either because he's bitter and complains a lot too. Right, and the people are like, why are we gonna like you? You have no personality. And Holmes is like, give me so my respect. fucking what? Yeah. With <laughs> so, um, with his angry ass. Yeah. So things hadn't quite escalated to the point they would by Ali. This is still the beginning of the year after the Scott Ledoux fight. That's when things really took a turn with the Ali uh, fiasco. But Holmes is still like, I'm not getting any respect. 
I knocked out Ernie Shavers. I beat Mike Weaver, blah, 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 blah. Like, you know, give me my respect. And so finally he fights um, Leroy Jones. He's not going to get a lot of respect for this fight because Jones, like I said, he has good skills and he's the NABF champion, but people think this is formality that Larry's going to beat him. And for the most part, that's what happened. Jones was competitive and he tried, but I mean, he got more or less outworked and outclassed. And I will say this, though, man, one thing that hindered his performance, and he mentioned this, and a lot of other Larry Holmes opponents mentioned this over the years, especially early title fight opponents, Larry Holmes had a tendency to use his thumb, whether he did it on purpose or not, it's open to debate, but um, he complained about that, Leroy Jones did, and so did Scott Ledoux, notably, but Jones definitely did suffer an injury because he retired after that fight for a couple of years. Yeah. I there wasn't any one point per se where they started having gloves with the attached thumb. Yeah. You know, I or at least if there was, I don't know it. But I but I could tell you that at this point, you know, you could see a lot of photos of of Larry Holmes at this time and you can see him like and he's like open-handed. Like he's a lot of and he and he would push too. Like he'd use open hands to push at fighters. Yes. And so I could easily see a thumb in the eye and shit like that happening when i back in the day like when i was a kid my dad had a fucking heavy bag and i remember the bag gloves that came with the heavy bag were like if you look at the fight the photos from like the fucking 30s and 40s and shit like that where fools had like the those wear their fucking gloves like that's what they looked like there and they were like not attached thumb you know like your thought you could totally move your thumb around and shit like that and that's what a lot of the photos of Larry Holmes look like. You could see him like pushing and shit like that in photos and his hands are like out. So you could easily see how that could catch an eye. And luckily, needless to say, that never happened to me. But I've, I remember getting poked in the eye in basketball and shit like that, dude. That's oh, dude, fuck that, awful. dude. Oh my God. Fuck that. <laughs> I, I even in sparring one time, I did catch a thumb. They're like, a, they're attached, but like the corner or something is still. Yeah, popped. you could still get scratched and shit. Yeah, and I did. And, and that was the worst feeling of my life. Like so, imagine just an actual open thumb just hitting you there. Nah, well, well, yeah, in well MMA, you see that okay. shit in MMA too, dude. That's like, what I was gonna say, man. In MMA, I'm not like familiar too much, but I know when someone oh, I hope they have to stop that, right? Oh, bro, they're like they're like doing like ultra slow mo, and in some oh, of these, so some bro. of these, these fools are like losing their finger yeah. in the fucking. It's... Yeah. Anyway, well, yeah, that could that would hinder your fucking performance, bro, Think for sure. When Stan Hansen wrestled Vader. In 1990, right before Tyson Douglas, both of them guys already wrestled stiff to begin with. Hanson claimed that he couldn't see. That's why he hit people. They start slugging it out, legitimately throwing punches. Hanson hit him so hard, Vader's eye popped out of his socket. Like, I'm not even lying. His eye pops out of his socket. <laughs> he Like, it's the freakiest thing. He has a mask on, so you don't really see it. But, like, his eye pops out of his socket. He grabs it, just pushes it back in there. <laughs> and... Yes, he like he just kind of pushes it back in, and um, instantly the eye just swells to like a puffy, just weird thing. And when he when, like you don't see the eye fall out, like he's not holding it like that, but you just see like you know he's doing something. You find out his eye popped out, he punched it back in, and when he moves it out, the, he takes his mask off because the swelling is getting so pronounced, and his whole eye is just completely swollen shut. And this thing, you hear the audience who is kind of quiet, they go, oh, like. Yeah, I was, I'm going to have to go look this up, but that yeah, sounds fucking awful. awful. It was crazy. God damn. Well, well, I mean, needless to say, that's not quite what happened to, to Leroy Jones, Jones, but still, 
dude, I mean, we've, we've seen time and time again, fighters get eye injuries during fights and detached retina. I mean, detached retina, that's a really bad injury. That's, that's usually a career ending injury. Can be. Yeah, absolutely. It's gotten, obviously it's gotten better over the years in terms of how people can treat it and um, recoveries and stuff like that. But like, nah, like what happened with Sugar Ray Leonard and others in the past. Yeah, I wouldn't fuck with it. I mean, I'm, Definitely not. Whatever, it's your eyes, but, you know, I wouldn't fuck with my eyes. There's so many personally. stories out there over the years in history that we've discussed about people that have suffered bad eye injuries and then no shit. they got it treated, but they went back to their career and then eventually, decades later, ended up blind. Fucking ridiculous, bro. Yep. Well, this this last fighter that I got anyway is not was not super large, but definitely earned reputation for eating his way from flyweight to heavyweight. And that was Willie Meehan. Yes. <laughs> so Willie, Willie, Willie uh, Meehan, Jack Dempsey talks about him quite fondly in his autobiography, Dempsey, here. Willie Meehan was a San Francisco fighter who, I mean, I, I don't know for sure whether or not he actually fought at flyweight. And it's fair to note that back in these times, motherfuckers were turning pro at like 11 years old. So who knows? You know what I mean? Like, so of course he's going to turn pro at flyweight. Or, you know. But in any case, uh, point is he obviously started much, much smaller than he ended up. And in any case, he fought five four-round fights against Jack Dempsey. And he, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think he won two of them. Two of them were a draw, and Dempsey won one of them. And so, uh, but also, he fought exhibitions, too. And it was one of those exhibitions that, according to Jack Dempsey, you know, like those kinds of exhibitions were what helped convince him that he shouldn't be fighting even exhibitions anymore after he officially retired, because he fought like according to him like 200 exhibitions even after he retired so i mean and and on top of that jack dempsey was fighting exhibitions fairly regularly during his career before he technically retired too but anyway back to willie meehan he specifically was known around san francisco for being a clown for being somebody who if you got in the ring with him he was going to make you look bad he was going to fuck around a lot he was going to like play jokes on you and like you know tap you on the shoulder type of shit and like you know, piss you off, basically, not really fight you, but maybe do just enough to kind of beat you type of thing. And uh, that's literally what Jack Dempsey said he did, that he made him look so bad that he was pissed off enough that he took it out on his next opponent because he was pissed off that Willie Meehan made him look so bad. And in any case, uh, he writes a couple of funny things about Willie Meehan in his autobiography there. Willie Meehan was a funny-looking guy, too. Yeah. It, he was a clown. That's what everybody knew him as. He had a gnarly year, I think. Just clearly a guy that had been through the ringer in his career. Yeah, he. Uh, they said that, I think I, if I'm remembering correctly, there was something about him working down at the docks or something like that in San Francisco. And he was just like a tough dude. You know, like he was sure. not often not in super great shape but that he was always down like to scrap, like that you could call him last minute and then he would fill in last minute. He'd fight like, you know, here and there on these shows in San Francisco and that he was fairly I'm reliable. Sure he was fighting during his breaks on the off work too. You know what I mean? Like Cleveland Williams said on during his breaks when he was working in the mills and doing what he was getting, you know, working in the fields that whenever they had a break, they would just go out there and beat each other up. <laughs> so one of the world's oldest pastimes, you know? 
The last guy I'm just going to mention briefly, um, because he passed away this year, actually, was a heavyweight from South Africa who didn't really make his didn't really make a name for himself in the states, but he was notable because he was a huge guy at one point and um, ended up knocking out Cali Notzi in the first round, clear out of the ring, and finishing his career. So good for him. His name was um, Jimmy Abbott. Jimmy Abbott, okay. Jimmy Abbott is his name, man. So in the in the late seventies, um, we've talked about how. Well, besides what was going on in Sun City, there was um, a little bit of wave of South African fighters making their ways to the States, including heavyweights at this point. You had um, Harry Cosia, Kalinozzi, um, and to a lesser degree, a guy like Mike Shook, probably butchered his last name, and a couple others. But Jimmy Abbott was part of that group, bigger than all of them, wider than all of them. And if you saw a photo of him, because he had this like blonde, curly hair, there's photo of him in ring magazine it's the article i want to say and i'm 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 pretty positive of this one from the howard cosell uh, issue where they where they do a feature on uh the south african heavyweights and when they mention jimmy abbott they show up they show a photo of him but at a certain angle and with his mouth open and with the curly hair he looks like a super heavyweight napoleon dynamite (laughs) (laughs) you know like he does he just Totally, because he has the mouth open. Like, he definitely you know, has that 80s look to him. He's got, like, kind of a mullet-looking, like, kind of shaggy hair. Yeah, 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 totally, totally. But he had, like, this this kind of, like, fro going on in the, early, in the very early, uh, late 70s, early 80s that made him look, you know. So, but, yeah, he was just a dude that was, like, an anomaly. When you saw him, man, he was just massive. But he was really popular, and he, was, he wasn't a bad fighter. I mean, he ended up fighting a couple of Americans. Um, Eddie the Animal Lopez beat him. And, um... I think maybe Marty Monroe or someone else. Yeah, I think he fought. But um, yeah, I just wanted to mention that guy, man, because he was different looking. Cause there's not a lot of footage on him out there. There is there is something that has surfaced on YouTube now, on uh, one of my favorite pages called um, Last Round Full Screen. The guy puts up a ton of rare footage, and he put up a clip of um. Jimmy Abbott's fight. Let me actually look it up really quick. I'm curious which one it was. Yeah, I I looked it up real quick and it said that he had uh, that he grew up pretty rough, that he had a very tough upbringing, and uh, that he nonetheless wound up coming on, going on to be a very, very good South African amateur um, and considered even now to be the best South African heavyweight to never win the South African title. Um, so, I mean, and on top of that, you know, he's from Gauteng, which is, or Gauteng, I'm not entirely sure how that's pronounced, but I do know that as an area that has, has produced a lot of very good fighters out of South Africa. We did an entire South Africa, you know, episode where we talked about nothing but South African fighters. Um, so, I mean, you know, we're at least somewhat familiar with the scene and know how lively it is, despite the fact that it's not really covered in the U.S. and the fact that not a lot of American fight fans know about it, but you know, I'm not gonna lie, I'm not like a Jimmy Abbott expert or anything. I had to no, no, I mean, it's, that's the thing about our show, man. We gotta bring up the random, most obscure. And like, if you look at his record too, man, Robbie Williams is a guy that ended up fighting for a cruiserweight title, and um, Abbott beat him again. Um, like I mentioned, Eddie the Animal Lopez, he beat Walter Santamore, who was a fringe. Well, I wouldn't call him a fringe contender, but he was a gatekeeper in the heavyweight division. Fought a lot of notable names in the late '70s, early '80s. And again, he knocked the hell out of Cali Notzi in one round. So, 
that alone makes me an instant fan of him. And um, there was clips of him, like, afterwards, like, you don't, like I said, you don't see his fights on YouTube, but he became popular after his career ended. He, like, gained a lot of weight, and then he lost a lot, and I think he either, like, got involved with, like, becoming a religion, like, pastor, did something. But there was yeah, a lot that's of clips what it said. But there was a lot of clips of him on YouTube, you know, hanging out with past opponents and just looking like he was having fun and jovial. Looked like a very fun jovial guy. I mean, he's a large foo, but he definitely looks happy in all yeah. these photos. Like he definitely looks like a like a happy dude. Like he had, uh, you know, like he was content with whatever was going on in his life at that moment. But it says that yeah, that he turned he wanted being a, a preacher or a pastor or something like that, yeah, finding totally. religion. Um. But yeah, that's definitely not a fighter that I would have brought up. So that's yeah. So we were just zinging back and forth, which is good. Um, and also on top of that, yeah, dude, if you look up some photos of the guy, he's he's he fits the bill for sure. And the fact that he wound up scoring a first round knockout of Cali Kanutze or however that's pronounced, that's a okay with me, bro. A okay with me. Straight up. Yeah, man. Anybody knocks out an apartheid lover is cool in my book. I'll truth yeah dude just that that entire period is so ridiculous needless to say i know we did an entire show on it but fuck it's very intense man very very intense but this has been kind of light i mean there was a few dark moments but it's mostly been a lighthearted show so yeah i'll talk about that crap yeah dude it's i will say it has been you know i love talking about the true crime and i love talking about the tragic stuff just because not because i love the tragedy just because i love the history not the tragedy necessarily but it has been nice to definitely keep it at least a little bit lighter or heavier (laughs) lighter in tone Mm -hmm. (laughs) for sure man i appreciate it dude i know you did some did some researching and studying up dude we always got to do a little bit of studying up for this and researching so i know that uh it takes up time and i appreciate that man for sure absolutely it's been a blast as always hey everybody Thank you so much. If you listened in, as always, please go ahead and subscribe via the podcast apps and leave us a comment, those kinds of things. Appreciated. If you watched on YouTube, hello and thank you so much. And subscribe there as well. Reply, all those sorts of things. Actually, I will say real quick, I've noticed a lot more people replying lately. Thank you so much because hey, we we like reading the replies and reading feedback for sure. Uh, so much appreciated. As far as social media goes, we're also there. The Knuckles and Gloves podcast is on Facebook and Instagram. It's also on Twitter. And individually, that's generally where we're hanging out on Twitter. Eris is on Twitter as Punch Zone Eris. Me, Patrick Connor, on there is Patrick M. Connor. We'll talk to you there, Eris. Take it easy, bro. Have a good one, everyone. Later, everybody. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.